Uh, trust that your Bibles are already open to Acts chapter 16, and uh, we're going to dig into that uh, passage in just a moment. But uh, the t- I don't know if you noticed, the title is, uh, Though It's Midnight, Though It's Midnight, and you'll see if you haven't already noticed that we'll come to that in the passage. But midnight, what does midnight mean to you? Well, midnight is the time of day that is in the middle of the night that marks the point of change from one day to the next. If you know the story, midnight is when Cinderella and her carriage and coachman all turn back to their former condition. And during my training, there were many days that midnight meant that I was about halfway through a 30-hour stretch or more of straight work with no rest, and I had a long, dark night ahead of me followed by another long day. Midnight is a time that most of us should be sleeping. And if we're not, it often represents some stress of some kind as we wake up and realize it's midnight. Well, midnight also has a symbolic meaning. In the dictionary, it says a deep or extended darkness or gloom. A deep or extended darkness or gloom. And as Phil and Tammy were sharing, and as Paul was sharing, I was getting that sense that many people live within that midnight, that deep or extended darkness or gloom. Perhaps you've heard of the doomsday clock. Anybody heard of the doomsday clock? A few people here. In 1947, a group of scientists who had helped develop the first atomic bombs created the symbol called the doomsday clock. The clock uses the imagery of midnight and a countdown to zero to convey threats to humanity and to the planet. The clock is set every year by this group as an indicator of how close they think we are as human beings to totally annihilating ourselves by means of nuclear weapons, climate change, and other technologies. For this year, the doomsday clock has been set to 100 seconds before midnight, the closest it has ever been. Uh, The furthest from midnight was 17 minutes before midnight in 1991. So today we're going to look at a passage in which five different individuals or groups of individuals experience some pain and darkness in their lives, a time of midnight of life. Two of them literally at midnight, three of them during a midnight season of life. Each of them had a different situation. Each of them had an encounter with Jesus with different responses to that encounter. And so we will look at what happened to them after Jesus appears in this midnight season of their lives. So the story picks up today as Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy are on their way to the place of prayer. We first met Lydia on that prior Sabbath day uh, we looked at last week. But before we dig in, I would like to just pause and uh, pray for our continued time here. Lord, As our Bibles are open before us, we ask that you would be our teacher. It really is a useless endeavor for us to be here listening to a mere human being. We don't want that. We don't have time for that. But we believe that when your word is taught, your voice is heard. That is the voice we are listening for this morning. So we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our waiting hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we're going to look at these midnight encounters. Now, Luke doesn't give us all the details, 
of these stories. Lots of questions I have about the details, but let's see which ones God chose to give us. So the first we see in verses 16 to 18, we meet a slave girl. A slave girl who Luke tells us had a spirit of divination. Well, this, is a, this unnamed slave girl is doubly in bondage. She is in, enslaved twice. She is possessed by a spirit being that gave her the ability of fortune telling, that is to tell other people their futures. And she was also enslaved by owners who exploited her for their financial gain. And over many days, Luke tells us, she is annoying Paul by her crying out. We see in verse 17, they're following, she's following them and crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, in one sense, that's a very true statement. They were servants of the Most High God, proclaiming the way of salvation. But not sure what she really meant or what others thought about it, because Most High God was a very general term used then for God. The Jews used it to refer to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Uh, the Greeks used it to refer to Zeus, to the, their chief God. So even though she's saying the Most High God, it's not clear what she really meant by that. In any event, Paul, in the name of Jesus, turns to her and casts the spirit out of her. This is one of the many questions I have. We don't know how he recognized her as being possessed by a spirit and not just some pretender or someone who was delusional. And we don't know why he was annoyed specifically or why he chose that time to cast out the demon. Why not earlier? Why not later? But what we do know is that when he casts out the spirit, she loses whatever fortune-telling ability that she had. So she has an encounter with Jesus in this dark midnight season of her life. Luke doesn't tell us whether she becomes a believer, but she does lose her bondage. She is no longer imprisoned by this spirit and presumably no longer enslaved and exploited by her owners. Uh, we don't know, but they may actually have cast her aside after this. So Jesus' coming relieved her of this dark midnight of her soul by releasing her from this prison. Well, that leads us to the slave owners. We see that in verses 19 to 24. The slave owners, uh, Luke tells us, had been making a lot of money from this girl. If you look in verse 16, brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. They were making lots of money, and there was more than one individual involved. She had owners. There was not one owner. They had been making much gain from her. But because of Paul, the dominoes start to fall. The spirit is gone, which means the fortune-telling ability is gone, which means that their source of income is gone. So what do they do? They drag Paul and Silas before the town rulers, the magistrates. And what they say is that these men are disturbing our city by teaching unlawful things. Now, they don't specify what those unlawful things are. They just say they're teaching unlawful things. But the other thing they do, if you look at that, these men are Jews and are disturbing our city, and they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. They turn this into a Jews versus Romans issue. And if you remember, Jews were a small minority in Philippi. Remember that there needed to be 10 Jewish men in the city to establish a synagogue, and there was no synagogue in Philippi, so presumably there weren't even 10 Jewish men present. So they turned this into a racial ethnic issue of Jews versus Romans. What was the result? 
Well, they stir up the crowd against Paul and Silas. The city leaders tear their clothes off of them, beat them with rods, and throw them into jail. And all of this without any discussion or investigation of the specific crime. And what they don't say is probably just as important, if not more so, than what they do say. There's no mention of what started all of this, their loss of income. They're they're not really concerned for this girl. They're not really concerned about Paul and Silas. All they know is that their money tree just dried up, and they're angry. There's no mention of their greed and the desire for revenge that leads to these lies and the injustice. And they certainly don't mention the fact that with a word, Paul just performed a miracle by casting this spirit out of this girl. So when Jesus appears at this midnight crisis of these slave owners, they do not accept the full significance of what had just happened. They evaluated the situation purely on the basis of their own personal greed, injustice, and exploitation of this girl. And here, for no extra charge, this is another example of where the occurrence of a miracle does not necessarily make someone a believer. They didn't even factor that into their equation of this. So we've seen the slave girl, the slave owners. Now we get to Paul and Silas, which really the focus here is in verse 25. And this is where the title of the the, uh, message came from. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, Paul and Silas were in prison uh, three times over. If you look in verse 24, the magistrates told the jailer to keep them safely So he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas were not only in the jail, in the prison, they were in the inner prison, in the dungeon, and their feet were in stocks. There was no way that they were getting out or going anywhere. They were victims of a great injustice, several great injustices, a severe beating, imprisonment without a fair trial. And Luke tells us it's about midnight. It's about midnight. What in the world are they doing awake at midnight? Well, they are likely, and it's easy to read by this and and miss this, they are likely in very great pain with open wounds. The beating with rods was no little thing. This was not a slap on the wrist and we'll throw you in jail. And we'll see that later as it comes up. And as I reflected on this, I would say, well, what would you be doing? What would I be doing if I had just done a great thing and was paid for it by the injustices of false accusations, public humiliation, beating, and wrongful imprisonment? Well, they were not focusing on the wrong that had been done and how badly they were feeling. They were not asking, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God allowing me to suffer like this. God, where are you? Do you really care? Did you see what they did to me? They were not saying, God, strike them dead. Let me just get my hands on them. I hope some evil comes upon them. No, in verse 25, we see that Jesus in them enabled them to pray and sing hymns to God. They were focusing on the only one who truly cares and can truly help. What songs, if any, do you sing when the painful midnights of life, when your doomsday clock seems to be counting down to zero? 
Well, here's a few of mine. Amazing grace. It is well with my soul. Be thou my vision. A mighty fortress. Be still my soul. Jesus, strong and kind. Is he worthy? There have been many dark midnights of my soul where these and other songs have been a source of great comfort as I focus on God and not on my pain. John Stott says in his commentary, instead of cursing men, they blessed God. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. Beaten and bloodied, in pain, in that inner prison, with feet in the stocks, Paul and Silas were more free at this midnight of their lives than any one of those outside enjoying a nice meal with friends and family and a good night's sleep. Though it's midnight in the prison, they are more free than the slave owners who just arrested them. They are more free than the government officials who beat them and imprisoned them. And they are more free than the jailer who is now guarding them. Speaking of whom... Let's look at him next. And we see about the jailer in verses 26 to 34. As Paul and Silas are praying, Luke says, a great earthquake shakes the prison, leading all the prison doors to open and everyone's shackles to come unfastened. The tables have turned and now the jailer is imprisoned by his fear. His midnight went immediately from peaceful sleep to severe panic. He knows that death is the penalty for allowing prisoners to escape. He knows that death is the penalty for allowing prisoners to escape. So he decided he was just going to do it himself and give it, get it over with quickly rather than wait for what could be much worse from his superiors. But Paul sees what's happening and stops him in his tracks. And what is the jailer's response to all of this as he encounters Paul? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now that's an odd question for a jailer to be asking as the prisoners are in position to escape and he's preparing to kill himself. But it's quite likely that before turning in for the night, he was listening to Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God as well. He went from being the jailer to wanting to know how to get out of his own spiritual prison in this dark midnight of his soul. And in verses 31 and 32, Luke tells us that they gave him and all his household the message of the gospel. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. As we saw before, it is only God who can cause a man or a woman to see their genuine need and seek to be saved from their prison of sin. Remember what we saw back in chapter 16, earlier in this chapter in verse 14. The Lord opened her, Lydia's heart, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened the heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In the severe midnight of his life, this jailer is set free from his own prison as God opens his heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And not just the jailer, but his household as well, as they listened intently to this message, put their faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know why God allowed Paul and Silas to suffer this great injustice and pain or why he allows any of his children to suffer so cruelly and unjustly. But we can know for sure that God saw them for those hours they were in prison. Jesus knew their pain better than anyone, having suffered it himself. 
And we can also say that sometimes God knows the best way to introduce prisoners or jailers to Jesus is if you're in prison with them. And in verses 33 and 34, we see four results of this jailer coming to Jesus. First, in the middle of the night, he washes their wounds. That's another detail that we can miss, but see what that is saying. This was no slap on the wrist. There were open wounds that were bleeding and needed attention and needed to be washed. And the jailer does that. Second, he is baptized at once, Luke says. He's baptized immediately. He makes this public declaration of his intent to no longer live for himself or for his gods, but to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Third, interestingly, he takes them into his own house and feeds them. Remember, we talked about this with Lydia, who after she came to faith in Jesus, offered hospitality to Paul and Silas in her own home. And again, in John Stott's commentary, I brought up the, his comment that once the heart is opened, the home is opened too. And I'm reminded of Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, practicing radically ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. It's the biblical truth that receiving the love of God turns into extending that love to others. And so this jailer himself demonstrates that by inviting them up into his own home and feeding them. And then fourthly, we see in verse 34, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He and his family rejoice. They celebrate that they had been set free from their imprisonment to sin. So we've seen the slave girl, the slave owners, Paul and Silas and the jailer. We're left now with the government leaders. We see them in verses 35 to 39, called magistrates in most translations. Well, the next morning, when the government offices open for business, these government officials send a message to the jailer to let Paul and Silas go. Well, that sounds like a good thing, right? Well, Paul knows that his primary and lasting citizenship is in heaven. It's interesting that it's in a letter he later writes back to these people in Philippi that he says that in Philippians 3.20. He says, we know that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior. But in this instance, Paul knows and exercises his earthly rights as a Roman citizen. Paul knows that a Roman citizen is entitled to a fair trial. Paul knows that a Roman citizen is not to be imprisoned without a fair trial. And he knows that a Roman citizen is never to be beaten under any circumstances, even if found guilty. And Paul includes all of that in his statement in verse 37. If you look there, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, no, a thousand times, no. Paul insists that these officials come themselves and release them. And we know that Paul is correct in this by their reaction. But first we have to note that this may not just be a matter of personal justice for Paul. He may not just be saying, I need to get back at them. It may also be a way of providing some protection for the infant church here in Philippi to give these leaders pause if they decide to move unjustly against the church 
They just can't do what they want to do. And so Paul is making a statement here. And what do the leaders, or how do the leaders respond? Well, they respond first with fear. They know they really blew it big time. They really blew it big time. So what do they do? They apologize. They attempt to appease them. And then they have a question of their own. Luke doesn't record it in those terms. But unlike the jailer, they don't ask, sirs, what must we do to be saved? They say, sirs, what must we do to make you leave? What must we do to make you leave? They released Paul and Silas from prison with no further inquiry. They obviously had no curiosity about what brought Paul and Silas there in the first place. They had no desire to hear more of this Jesus that Paul and Silas have been talking about. And they do not realize that they remain in a prison of their own in their encounter with Jesus in this dark moment. They want nothing to do with him. And then we go back to Paul and Silas in verse 40 for a brief moment. After leaving the prison, they visit Lydia. Apparently her home had become home base for them while in Philippi. They visit the rest of the church, encouraging them before they leave. And here again, we see the emphasis on encouraging the believers, strengthening them. That's a theme that we see throughout as believers come together and encourage one another and strengthen one another in their faith. Well, let's conclude this by trying to bring this home. Each of these individuals were in bondage. They were enslaved to something. Two were also victims of exploitation and injustice, the slave girl and Paul and Silas. And each were in a period of darkness of some sort, in a midnight of life. What about you? What are the midnights of your life, seasons of deep or extended darkness or gloom? Whether they are self-inflicted or you're a victim of circumstances beyond your control, what are you in bondage to? What am I in bondage to? Fear, worry, hopelessness? Anger, whether outward or inward? An ongoing desire for revenge? What about your own sin and patterns that you cannot break? Substance abuse, sexual immorality in its various forms, lying, cheating, stealing, bad habits with speech, treating others poorly, misuse of food, Netflix binging, financial irresponsibility, overspending, particularly over the internet. Or where have you been treated unjustly? Perhaps at home, at work, with your family, or even in the church, or in society in general. Or are you experiencing suffering that seems meaningless, loss of a loved one, physical illness, mental illness, Relentless pain that just won't go away. Disappointment, persistent and overwhelming grief, loneliness. And this is not a complete list. This is just an attempt to try to connect with us. When you are in midnight seasons of life, when your doomsday clock is counting down to zero, God comes to you in those dark moments, those dark midnights, to offer the freedom of his presence I was reminded of a quote from Paul Tripp because we are so feeling alone at those times. Paul Tripp says this, it is not impossible for you to feel alone, but it is impossible for you to be alone. 
It is not impossible for you to feel alone, but it is impossible for you to be alone. He goes on to say, we must distinguish between the power of what we feel and the biblical promises that should shape the way we act and respond. You see, we have the same choices that all of these people had that we read about today. We can focus on the darkness, the personal loss, the pain, the revenge, the fear, or we can focus on the Lord and Savior who made us, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, who sits at the right hand of God interceding for us, who is coming back for us someday to usher in his eternal kingdom where there is no more pain, no more injustice, no more death, and no more sorrow. So if you are an unbeliever here today, someone who has not put your faith in Jesus, this is your invitation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises forgiveness of your sins and freedoms from whatever prison you are in. And to believers, this is our invitation to trust God in the midnights of our lives. Jesus gives us songs in the night. He sees our plight. He knows our pain. He hears our cries. And he is powerful enough and loving enough to do something about it. And he promises that one day soon all will be made right. This is not to minimize the pain and suffering. This is not to say, oh, it's nothing. But it is to maximize our hope of God's rescue now and ultimately in heaven. As John Piper has said, and I've heard others as well, all suffering has an expiration date. Don't you love that? All suffering has an expiration date. We're reminded when we looked at Acts 14, 22, where Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God does not promise a life free of pain, trouble, or heartache, but he does promise that the midnights of our lives, he will be there with watchful eyes and tender care, promising that one day all injustices we have suffered will be made right. Going back to Paul Tripp's quote again, it is not impossible for you to feel alone, but it is impossible for you to be alone. So I would like to close with the words of a song written by Ron Hamilton years ago that speaks of the things we saw in this passage. When I read of Paul and Silas in the jail so long ago, I can see this truth so glorious that my father wants me to know. There are times when pain seems endless and my suffering seems so long, but my Savior bears each sorrow and he gives to me a song. Though it's midnight in the prison, my loving Father reigns in heaven. His arms enfold me, no bars can hold me when I lift my voice and sing his song of praise. Though my body's held in shackles, Christ has set my spirit free. Chains are broken, doors fly open, though it's midnight. Though it's midnight, I will praise my God. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this great reminder that you are very near us in the dark midnights of our lives. You have not forgotten about us. You know our pain and our sorrow. 
and you give songs in our hearts when it looks like all is lost and hopeless. Help us to remember with the psalmist that weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Help us remember that suffering has an expiration date. Help us find our hope, peace, and comfort in your love and your power toward us as seen in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And though it's midnight in the prison, help us remember and to sing that it is truly well with our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.